look at you, Verity Johnson, you know, every single move, my gosh. You, you, you cannot get a bit of groove on that, huh? <laughs> It's I, it, this is like the, the multi-generational floor filler every wedding. Oh, it's too much. Yeah. It's unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, on this day in 84, Michael Jackson won a record eight Grammy Awards, uh, including Album of the Year for Thriller. Uh, according to an ethnomusicologist, Miles White, this album completely defined the sound of post-disco contemporary R&B. It was a, it's a cultural touchstone, isn't it? And, of course, there was... The video, of which I'm sure, Liam, every uh, law party, the floor would clear and you'd be on it. The tie on your head, um, I can see you right now. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I've kind of, you know, I think, you know, hasn't, hasn't Michael Jackson cancelled pretty thoroughly? Oh, you know? I can hardly like, hear you. You're, you're, you're speaking through a toilet roll. We might have to come back to you. Uh, anyway, um, in 2005, he was tried and acquitted of child sexual abuse allegations and several other charges. The FBI found no evidence of criminal conduct by Jackson in either case. So there you go. A bit of thriller for you. It is time for I've Been Thinking. Uh, I love this part of the show where the panellists pour their heart out. Actually, Liam, let's start with you. Okay, well, look, first of all, I've been thinking that you should have gone with my choice for the song, which was Bridge Over Troubled Water, instead of Michael Jackson, who's been thoroughly cancelled. But my actual I've been Nine thinking... Nine to noon play, is... Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is why I didn't play it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay, all right, all right, all right. There all you right. go, so, anyway, look, on tap. It's, it's, it's underneath you. Terrible song. What I've been thinking about is just how we've evolved into two different species in terms of Android users and iPhone users. And my family, you know, family unity is important to me and I consider us to be an iPhone family. And I need to get a new iPhone, so I said, my son's old enough to have a phone, so I said to him, do you want to have my iPhone 12? And he said, no, he doesn't because he he prefers Android. And it's just thrown me for a, thrown me for a loop that I would have a son who would prefer an inferior phone model. Um, and then I thought about it, and he, he he's aware that I don't know how to use an Android phone. And, um, you know, so that means I can't check up as easily on what he's doing on his phone, right? So he's, he's, he might be being smart, but I think, you know, I think we need to have a rule that each family can only have one model or one one brand of phone. Your family makes the decision. Everyone in the family has got to stick by that one type of phone. And we're an iPhone family. That is a recipe for trouble. I, I've got to say, Liam, I wasn't paying too much attention to what you were saying because underneath they were playing Bridge of a Troubled Water. Um, but <laughs> your words ran out of your mouth like Socrates. They were like honey. Um, because of the uh, song underneath. So you'll have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> it was very clever. Thank you for that. All right, Verity Johnson, do you want Bridge or not? No, you don't, you don't, I don't like the song. I don't think it's a good backing track for this. I think I need something angrier. Do you have any Ying Yang twins? I feel like that's probably the appropriate mm. mood. Okay, what's your, um, what's your I've been thinking? Look, something I've been thinking about is I wrote about this last week, um, last weekend for this column, and I've never ever had this kind of response for anything I've ever written before. And it was about how I kind of feel as though to buy a house in New Zealand these days you have to have rich parents because for my era um, when you're looking at buying a house and you're in your late 20s mid 30s that kind of time it's basically 200 grand to get a house deposit now I don't know a single person who has drug dealer money like that kind of lying around 200 grand in the bank and the thing is is now I'm going to all these like parties and we're hanging out and everyone is saying to me the only reason they can buy a house is that uh, a parent like gave them the money or a grandparent died I have not met a single person who said, yes, I saved up 200 grand on my own. And yeah. it's such a strange 
culture that we've got that it seems to have become less egalitarian for my era, whereas I remember when we were younger, we were told if you work hard, you can buy a house. Now it's like you will work hard for your entire life. And even if you do work hard, you will never buy a house because it's all pre-written depending on what family you come from. And can, I, can, I just, Leon. can I just ship onto that? Like, I, I'm 38, right? And we, mm. I think my, me and my wife, we were the last generation that could do it on your own. Because mm. so we, we bought our first house for $203,000. We had $18,000 as a deposit. And that was in 2011, before everything went crazy. And we <sighs> scraped together everything to get that $18,000 together. And it was, you know, it was it was way less than what, what the, the percentage deposit you need now, but that those rules weren't in place. But the prices were just were just were just on a different level. Yeah. And and I I feel that we are the last generation that had that privilege of that being scraping together a deposit and doing it on your on your own. And it's really sad. Yeah. Can I can I come back to that? So you worked as hard as you could to save that $18,000. Let me ask you, when you hear the, 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 the numbers banded around today, Liam, as a homeowner, and you are talking upwards of $180,000, up to $200,000 as a deposit, what goes through your mind? Well, that was, our, that was the cost of our house. I mean, I know it's in Palmerston North, but, you know, that's, it's amazing, right? We couldn't, we couldn't do it. You, couldn't, you do not have the disposable income at the yeah. end of the fortnight to save that amount of money up you just don't now we're lucky we've been on the ladder right so we've re- we've every you know it's been it's been a, almost 15 years we've we're, uh, i've barely maintained our house and it's you know more than doubled in, in, in value so you know we we're the last generation to do it and we've also been so we've been part of the wave that screwed everyone else but i i, I hear it and i just think well, we couldn't have done that mm. we could do it now because we've got that capital you know sort of saved up but not through effort it's 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 really it's it's sad well here's one uh just come through uh a listener says my 21 year old son and his friend are moving into their own house today savings plus kiwi saver and a Kaingora grant. So, yeah, congratulations to you. It is 6.43. You are on the panel, RNZ National. I'm with you in the 7 to 8 p.m. hour as well. Detail starting uh, out of 7, so do stay with me. We are with Verity Johnson and Liam here this afternoon. I asked you, um, just out of interest, because we are going to be talking about this very shortly, do you recall the days when pubs, were smoking or you could smoke indoors whether or not you had an ashtray on your desk we have just had such a big response here's one for example i haven't been a bar person but i've been a nurse and experienced handover in a smoke filled nurse's station hard to believe and certainly would not want to go uh, back to that uh, of course um and wallace as a musician in the nzso for about 30 years i'm astonished to think back to the late 60s and 70s when many of my colleagues used to smoke in our rehearsal recording studio during our work day worst of all were some of our brass players who would light up when they had bars rest while the rest of us were playing and would balance their lighted cigarette on the lip of the music stand while they played a few notes. Goodness knows what was happening to our and their lungs, but we couldn't escape the smoke for years. Extraordinary. So to this, smoke-free repeal legislation under urgency in Parliament today with extremely heated debate. Associate Health Minister Casey Costello, who is leading the repeal, has argued that smoke-free 2025's target of getting smoking rates for all population groups under 5% could be achieved if current 
declines continued. And she warned of the potential downside of taking a prohibitionist approach for smokers or for retailers and to crime. But this has been a huge issue for the country. It was seen as world-leading legislation with the UK emulating this in fact. Now, most Kiwis did not want the legislation to be removed, according to a One News Virian poll from earlier this month. To discuss this, we have Professor Richard Edwards at the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago, Wellington. He's a deputy editor of the Journal of Nicotine and Tobacco Research. Professor Edwards, welcome. Kia ora, kia ora, Wallace. Very interesting hearing those snippets of social history, isn't it, going back in the day when actually you could smoke in offices. Yes, I remember it well. And actually, I was involved with some of the research to um, show that uh, offices and pubs and restaurants were very heavily polluted. So, um, um, you know, I'm I'm very, very aware of that. And of course, that's one of the things where, you know, legislation has been introduced and now absolutely no one wants it to be repealed. And it just shows how these measures can be quickly become, you know, part of the fabric, part of the, the norms of society that we just don't smoke indoors, we don't smoke around other people. Well, is that quite a good kicking off point politically? Because I can recall, uh, because I was in media at the time it happened as well, and um, getting smoking out of bars was a big issue and it was very controversial. Yeah, and lots of people um, opposed it, you know, and um, but I think a lot of those people who opposed it now would have to admit Oh, actually, we were wrong, and this, you know the world didn't cave in when when pubs went smoke free. And actually, there are a lot more pleasant places. So, so I think you know that that would have been the case as well with these measures. But unfortunately, this this uh, government has decided to um, sabotage them instead. Verity. Um, I'm just curious because I find the repealing and even the move to even just. Uh, get rid of smoke free New Zealand deeply left field as though this was never really talked about in the run up to the election then suddenly here we are um, having this entire debate and it kind of feels like it came out of nowhere and potentially it was I get the I, I know that um, it was a minor party thing that got brought in as part of the coalition deal um, but does anyone else feel this slightly undemocratic in the sense that you mentioned earlier that this is a deeply unpopular notion with the public why are we pushing ahead with this if they know it's so unpopular Richard? Well, that's a very, very good question. Uh, no, it was not campaigned. New Zealand First had it in their manifesto. ACT and National Party did not. As far as I know, it was never mentioned in the election campaign. There was no uh, mandate for this. The, the government couldn't come in and say, look, we campaigned on this and we said we were going to do it and now we're going to do it. It came out of the coalition agreement, presumably at the insistence of New Zealand First, uh, who got 6% of the vote, I think. So, um, And what's more, some of the measures that, and particularly denicotinisation, which is, I think is the key measure, was actually strongly supported by uh, Dr. Shane Ratti and the National Party in opposition. They wanted it done more quickly ahead of the other measures. So it, it's pretty incredible Credible. They have no mandate, and yet they're doing it, you know, under urgency with no scrutiny. It, it, that's why it is an utter travesty. Well, let's bring in a political commentator, Liam. Would you agree with that or not? Um, well, look, I'm um, I'm a National Party supporter. I've just um, put that on the table, um, and but but you know, like it is weird, right? That this would be something that the government would sort of hang its hat on. I mean, it is. I think it is just the reality of MMP. Um, and, you know, you can say it's undemocratic because you don't like this, but, you know, whenever you have an, an MMP government, you have stuff that comes in that isn't supported by the major parties or wasn't campaigned on. And, it, and you know, you've got to take the good and the bad with that to an extent if you have MMP. But there has been this huge, like even in my own lifetime, 
when I was 16, I was 16 or 17, or maybe 18, I should say, when the, the law changed. And I remember from one week to the other, you know, you'd go out to the pubs on a Saturday night and, like, you'd come home smelling of smoke and then uh, the week next week you'd come home smelling of BO. And, like, the, the BO was so noticeable in those early weeks of the smoking <laughs> in pubs ban because, because, like, it had been so masked by this um, overpowering, you know, um, scent of tobacco. And you got, you got used to it. And no one would ever go back to that. And you know, I never see people smoke anymore. And so we had this huge social change. I think everyone is aware that smoking is bad for you and that you shouldn't do it. Um, is there is there room for saying that, you know, if despite all the evidence, all the social change, people still want, are going to smoke, there is some sort of room for personal freedom for people to make that bad decision? Is there, is there any room for that still? Yeah, what of that, Richard? Well, well, not if you're addicted. <clears throat> I don't know whether you've ever been a smoker, but it, it's hard when, when nicotine is highly addictive. And, you know, most smokers, 80 90% want to quit. Most of them have tried to quit. Most of them, are, about a half of them have tried to quit in the last year, but most of them say that they're addicted. So, I mean, what, what we're talking about here, if smoking causes a whole range of diseases, 50 or more, it causes death and suffering. I've, I've been a respiratory doctor. I've seen lung cancer and emphysema and so on. Um, you know, this is real suffering. And if you allow, if more people smoke and smoke for longer, then more people will suffer and die. That is true. These measures would almost incontrovertibly have reduced the number of people smoking and the length of time that they smoked. So therefore, they would have reduced death and suffering. So the government is taking a deliberate step to, by repealing, to have death and suffering occur that would not have occurred if they hadn't repealed these measures. And furthermore, these are measures that were in place they would, the legislation was there, you know, that can be hard, getting stuff through Parliament. All they had to do was just let it take its course, let the implementation happen, which was already beginning to uh, get underway. But instead, they've taken a deliberate decision to get rid of these measures that would have reduced death and suffering. That's why it's a travesty. And it's not a joking matter. It's not, it, you know, talking about BO in pubs and things like that. This is about an, a, an action by the government that will result in more people dying and suffering than would otherwise have done so. Just a final comment uh, for, for, uh, for you, Professor Edwards. Minister Costello said, look, the coalition government is committed to the smoke-free 2025 goal, but simply taking a different regulatory approach to reducing smoking rates and the harm from smoking. Is there not something in that? Well, we haven't heard what that approach is, but I mean, they've ruled out just about every effective um, regulatory measure that's not in place. So, so I don't think they're going to take strong regulatory measures. They'll probably do some um, some more um, quit smoking support, which will be a good thing, but it's not going to make a, a huge difference. Mm. So, so yes, I, 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 they may well be committed to it, but what I'm saying is that they are repealing measures that would have got us there quicker and that would have saved lives reduced suffering. And they're doing that deliberately. Professor Richard Edwards uh, from the University of Otago, Wellington, Deputy Editor of the journal Nicotine and Tobacco Research. And keep that feedback coming. We'll have some more of that in the 7 to 8 p.m. hour. Can you recall the days when you could smoke in bars and pubs? Uh, text me 2101 or indeed officers. Did you have an ashtray beside you as you're working? Well, not at your computer, but at your whatever you worked on, your 
block of paper. It's eight away from seven on the panel with Verity Johnson and Liam here. And to this, when we look at a food product on the shelf and see labels like organic and plant-based, we often read it to mean healthy. It mightn't be the fuller picture. A recent study out of Australia audited more than 700 plant-based food products, including everything from meat and dairy substitutes to baked beans and legumes to record their nutritional value. They found that many products are worryingly high in salt or saturated fats. To discuss and explain, we have one of the lead authors of the study, uh, Laura Marchese, a PhD student at the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University. Laura, welcome to the panel here in New Zealand. Thank you very much for having me. I was really interested in this because I, I do eat the odd um, burger not made of meat. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. It seems like the most worrying trend here was the salt content. And it was really quite high in some instances. Can you explain that? Mm. So we specifically looked at salt in these plant-based meat alternatives. Because in both Australia and New New Zealand, unfortunately, we are eating way too much salt. And we know that too much salt isn't good for our blood pressure as well as our heart health. So we conducted this audit and we found that there really was a wide range in the amount of salt in these products, all the way up to 2,000 milligrams per day, which is the recommended intake per day per person um, for Australian people and New Zealand people. So if you're going to buy one of these plant-based meat alternatives, we flip, recommend that you flip over, look at the back of the pack, and try and get something which has about 250 milligrams of sodium or less. Good and that's tip. how you know that you're picking a healthy option. Thank you. Good tip. Uh, have you noticed? That, have you noticed this? You'd be you'd be all over this plant-based stuff. <laughs> I am not over this I, at you, all. You know, <laughs> I can't stand it. <laughs> Everyone's always like, "Do you want to go to Lord of the Fries?" And I'm like, "No, no, I don't. I want to kill a chicken myself with you're my like, bare hands." You're like a good lamb burger, like Liam. I do, yeah. yes. But I am curious, yeah. Laura. Like, do you think that um, part of the proliferation of these brands is because people are kind of jumping on the whole like greenwashing marketing buzz, and so there's lots of these brands coming out being like, "We're plant-based," implying that they're super healthy because they have that kind of green wash PR spin to it? Mm, It's really interesting because we have excellent research that shows many health benefits from having a diet which is full of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So we have great evidence that a plant-based diet is really good for you for many different reasons. But if we've got these processed foods spinning that information for their own benefit, yeah, that's where it's a bit risky because the evidence is for like really unprocessed diets full of fruits and vegetables, and less so for a processed, unhealthy diet. We don't want to see that. Okay, Liam. I mean, I mean, potato chips are a plant-based food, right? I mean, you know, like, it's... Um, Technically. Yeah. Whether or not something's plant-based isn't the end one be or whether it's healthy or not. I mean, Fair point. I personally, I am far too patriotic as a New Zealander to ever eat a meatless burger. Um, you know, I'm a real New Zealander, Wallace, unlike, yeah, unlike you, so sure. I do that. But... Um, you know, it comes down to, doesn't I suppose it just comes down to the fact that, you know, the more processed food is, the more stuff that's in there that's not natural. Um, you know, plants not supposed to taste like meat. To make plants taste like meat, you've got to do something to it, right? And inevitably that's going to involve processing. Is that an oversimplification? Sounds like an oversimplification to me, Laura. I don't think so. If you simplify it to unprocessed plant foods, so, you know, your whole grains, your fruits and vegetables, 
foods like that, you're going in an excellent direction for your health. Okay. And we also did mm, find not- that these unprocessed legumes, beans, they had excellent you know, nutritional values for dietary fiber. They were low in sodium. So it really does check out with what's at the supermarket. I'm just curious, is this a little bit like how vegan leather was supposed to be like this touted product that was really good like for everything and it turns out it's actually really bad for the environment? Is this the new, is plant-based the new vegan leather and that it's actually really bad for you even though it's spun as really good for you? It just depends what you're assessing. So as in what foods you're assessing, what country you're assessing it in and, you know, what measure you're going to use to assess it. But we do know that just like um, for your health, the unprocessed foods, they're excellent for the environment, they're excellent for your wallet, and they're excellent for your health. So they really do tick all of the boxes. It'd be interesting. The other one I want to make, because uh, it's not just the plant-based, it's everyone on, everyone on Instagram seems to be, seems to be drinking, uh, including Liam, is the uh, coconut-based milks. Oh, that's disgusting. You know, it's all about... What? It's, it's all about... Uh, didn't you go on Instagram... Uh, Drinking coconut-based milk was that you or someone else? Anyway, I don't use Instagram. That's so <laughs> insulting. My parents are dairy farmers. How dare you? Whoops. <laughs> was, just own me. I, th- I want an inheritance. I think it was another Liam. But yeah. coconut-based milk, very high mm-hmm. in saturated fat, Laura. Well, we found that um, plant-based milks made from other ingredients, you know, soy, oat, rice, those sort of milks. They had a lower saturated fat content compared to the coconut-based milks. So we recommend that when you're buying uh, plant-based milk, once again, flip over the back of pack and look for something with less than 3 grams of saturated fat per 100 grams. Um, And it's the same for plant-based cheeses, plant-based yogurts. We found that the uh, coconut alternatives were higher in saturated fat than those made from other ingredients. Good tip. Good yeah. tip again, yeah. So that notion again, just be careful of what you eat and actually look at the back of the packet, Laura, and make sure, what is it, uh, two, uh, 200 milligrams of salt or under? 250 milligrams of sodium or under, and try and pick any plant-based dairy alternative as high as possible in calcium, and it'll be really good for you. There you go. Very, very good. Nice to have you on the program. That's uh, Laura McKenzie, a PhD student um, at Deakin University, nutritionist, uh, talking about um, uh, organic and plant-based and what it really means to be healthy. And on that note, I'll let you go and drink some real milk. The man or two there, Liam. Sorry mm. about that. Yep. Um, and oh, man. <laughs> and Verity Johnson, great to have you on the show as well. I'm Wallace Chapman. Stick around. We've got more feedback and we have the detail for you just after 7 p.m. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.